the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon, Warwick Long with you indeed. A second case of anthrax has been found. This one on a neighbouring property. We're about to get those details from Agriculture Victoria, which has been on the scene for those further livestock deaths. Plus dairy farmers, we don't often hear from some of the major milking companies in Australia. One that we hear from rarely is Lactalis. Lactalis operating a number of key dairy factories that had their own problems during the last week or so with wild storms wiping out power to even the factories, let alone the dairy farms and other individuals who we've been speaking through all of this week. You'll hear from the CEO of Lactalis, wide-ranging interview looking at their reasons to lay off some staff recently, also their reasons and thoughts behind milk pricing in Australia, what to expect next season, and whether there should be a review of the mandatory milk pricing code. A lot of discussion there for you, and a whole lot more today on The Country Hour. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's give you the details you need to know about this anthrax case, though a second case of anthrax has killed more livestock in northern Victoria. Spores of the bacterial disease can live in the soil for up to 50 years. When disturbed, can infect livestock, killing them suddenly. The risk there is it can spread very quickly if those livestock are opened up, spreading more spores, and there is always a risk for humans as well. That's why authorities respond quite quickly. And Deputy Chief Veterinary Officer for Victoria, Cameron Bell, joined me a short time ago to tell me about this latest case where he says the new case of anthrax has been found on a neighbouring property to where the disease killed five beef cattle last week. So Agriculture Victoria is responding to the detection of anthrax on a second uh, beef cattle property in the Shepparton region, neighbouring the first property that was identified last week. So both properties are quarantined and Agriculture Victoria staff are vaccinating all livestock at that second property and continuing uh, intensive surveillance activities in the district. Due to the early reporting by the uh, producers on both properties and the veterinarians, we've certainly been able to undertake swift action um, to reduce the likelihood of disease impacting more uh, more livestock a couple of details, if I may, is is it just a single animal that has died in this case? Um, there, yeah, there's been two deaths on this new property. So two so deaths. They, Are they also beef cattle? Uh, beef cattle, yes, that's correct, yep. Does this change your quarantine and vac- vaccination program for, for this area with this extra detection? Look, it doesn't at this stage worry. Certainly the detection is, is not unexpected, um, particularly in northern Victoria, um, yeah, particularly during summer as well. And with the long survival of the anthrax bacteria in soil, so we're not surprised with the um, with the detection on a second property um, in in this in the vicinity of the first one, and and it is really a um, pertinent reminder of the importance of early reporting by farmers, veterinarians, um, any livestock owners that do have unexplained sudden deaths, and and that early reporting just means that we can promptly undertake those investigations and rule in or rule out anthrax. So anthrax, as you've told us in the past, is that the spores can live for a very long time in the dirt and and when animals sort of consume or have their their noses in that bacteria, that's how an an infection can occur. So what's your read on how 
these animals on the adjacent property were infected by anthrax in this case? Look, that, that's a really good question, Warwick. And um, yeah, there's a lot that we don't uh, sort of understand about the um, emergence of anthrax um, in, in these types of situations. And a couple of possibilities are uh, local spread, um, even through um, flies or the, the spread of carrion by um, vermin. In this case, um, with the prompt action, we've been able to contain carcasses, secure them and, and destroy them. Um, but I think with thinking about sort of the, the ecology of anthrax, um, it, it is complex. Temperature, rainfall, et cetera, can, uh, are factors that can influence the emergence of, of anthrax spores. So that really um, under, underpins the importance of, of, of early reporting, of the surveillance that we're doing so that we can, if there are further cases, detect them. And, and look, um, it, it is certainly possible that we could see further cases if it is uh, representing a situation where the environmental conditions are encouraging the emergence of spores, but really you know, just encourage all, all livestock producers to report any um, unexplained sudden deaths so, we, so that we can investigate them. Do you have an idea of how many animals you've vaccinated in the quarantine area? To date, off my head, there's probably a, approximately 1,500 that have been vaccinated. But what we'll also be doing is undertaking risk assessments of other properties, but based on a whole range of factors, to determine if we uh, need to undertake vaccination um, on those properties as well. Uh, Agriculture Victoria maintains a stock of vaccine for use in anthrax responses, and, and it's certainly an effective tool um, in combination with quarantine and other uh, biosecurity requirements to um, to contain the spread of the disease. But what's really critical is that promptness of being able to to act quickly and, and get the vaccine into um, animals to reduce the, the risk. How long is a property that has had an anthrax infection under quarantine for? So the properties uh, that, are, that have been infected um, are under quarantine for 20 days. And, and that reflects the, um, the incubation period of the disease. Um, but that's 20 days following the completion of vaccination of all the stock on the affected property or for 20 days after the last anthrax death, whichever is longer. Um, th- those controls you know, do not Im- impact on the movement of local people, vehicles or livestock sort of in, in the district. Um, and, and certainly when a property is quarantined, no livestock or animal products can leave the property. Um, and, and there's certain controls over vehicles or equipment that might have been in contact with infected carcasses and you know, haven't been disinfected appropriately. But other than that, um, you know, movements of, of people um, onto those properties aren't restricted. Uh, Cameron Bell, is there anything else that the community needs to know or that you think is important for them to know? Look, I think the most important thing is that livestock owners anywhere in Victoria um, report any cases of unexplained deaths to our 24-hour emergency animal disease hotline. That's 1800 675 um, or to their local vet. Or you can ring our Agriculture Victoria Animal Health Staff during office hours on 136 186. 136 186 is that number again. Cameron Bell there. Deputy Chief Veterinary Officer in Victoria, giving you the latest details. Two more animals have died from anthrax. There were five 
last week on a property northeast of Shepparton. Uh, this is a neighbouring property and around, as you heard, approximately 1,500 or so animals have been vaccinated in that area. The quarantine uh, remains in place and a lot of work being done by the authorities in response to that outbreak there. And if anything changes, of course, we'll give you more details here on the Country Hour. And you can always send us a text 0467 842 722. Let's return to uh, details of the damage and recovery from those storms, particularly in Gippsland, which still have dairy farmers in quite a difficult situation. And if you want to ring us and tell us what you're up to and how it's going at your place, Lisa was amazing yesterday ringing us from Colville. Hadn't heard of the effects there. So if you want to tell us what it's like where you are, 1300 977 222 is the number, 1300 977 222. Because the amount of damage to Gippsland farmers caused by that severe storm that ripped through the region on Tuesday is really starting to become clear. But the lack of power, road access and connectivity is hampering recovery. Uh, Karen McLennan is Gipps Dairy's executive officer. She's been fielding many farmers' calls and says the lack of power is a key issue, particularly in dairy, and it's becoming frustrating. Most farmers have got a bit of a risk management plan in place because obviously power is really important to their business. So many of them have got backup generators and that type of thing. So that's probably, you know, not as big a deal, but there's all varying levels of generators around that are are able to be used. So some have got generators that can um, power the the milking plant that, that, you know, supports the milking of the cows and keeps the milk cold, whereas others might just have enough generator power to actually milk their their cows and potentially not, um, yeah, be able to maintain the the required temperatures of milk and that type of thing. So it, it's all varied, but I think um, the the biggest complexity, I guess, around the power being out and the use of generators is farmers are continuously having to. Um, adapt, you know, what do I need the generator to be used for now? Is it to get water to the troughs so that the cows are drinking? Is it about, you know, keeping fences electrified so that animals are staying where they need to be? Or is it crushing the grain that's needed when the cows come into the shed to be milked? So it's, while it's, it's a, um, it's an inconvenience, I guess there's just putting that added pressure on farmers who are, Hard workers anyway, so it just means they've got to, yeah, think a bit more and problem solve a bit more than what they usually would do. And we've heard there's been milk dumped. What have you heard about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, hearing there's been milk dumped, um, a, a range of issues kind of can can lead to that, and that could be about farmers without power or appropriate power sources not being able to maintain temperatures in a vat, so you know milk can't be collected all the way through to, you know, um, challenges, you know, with with all the processes, I guess, are in exactly the same boat as farmers. They're trying to rely on um, backup generators and that type of thing to be able to keep quantities of milk, um, yeah, able to still, still be processed. And the connectivity issues, what can be done about that? I think just everybody has to have a backup plan. I think that's what we're sort of realising from these events and that that's, you know, that's even within our um, coordinating groups that sort of help and, and, you know, come into play when these events happen. We think we might be able to communicate via these means or use this available technology to collect information, but I think it's always making sure we've got a fail-safe backup plan. Um, yeah, there's definitely, yeah, technology within a, within a dairy um, that you know that does 
at times fail. So, yeah, farmers are kind of making sure they've got backups, yeah, in place that, that may or may not do exactly what they need them to do but will enable them to sort of get through that next milking or that next couple of milkings until the technology's back up. That's Karen McLennan, Gipps Dairy Chief Executive Officer there, speaking with Emma Field. And uh, some updates coming really from the Premier speaking today on the amount of homes and infrastructure that has been destroyed in that area. Now saying 16 homes in Victoria, South Gippsland were destroyed by those wild storms. Uh, the Premier says the number's likely to rise as the damage in and around the town of Merbu North continues to be assessed. And we know how difficult it has been to assess that, especially if you're listening in Merbu North. You haven't had the phones really, have you, to be able to tell many people about that. Um, it's incredible as we learn more about what's happening. The government says it's now activated prolonged power outage payments as well. If we can get some details on that, we'll bring it to you. In separate disaster, as you heard earlier this morning, 44 properties also destroyed in bushfires in the Wimmera region. That's mainly at Pomona, but also in the Dadswells Bridge fire too. I did reach out to Agriculture Victoria to see if they'd made much headway in the way of assessment of the damage caused by the floods and the fires. I did get a statement back from them saying we've seen 130 sheep deceased in the vicinity of the Mount Stapleton fire near Dadswell Bridge, uh, where animals have been, those animals have been buried with approval from the EPA on the site. Uh, agriculture staff, still, Victoria staff are still around the Pomonal community. Uh, no further reports of losses to stock there yet, uh, but they say in regards to the storms, there are early reports of damage across southeast metropolitan Melbourne and Gippsland impacting horticulture culture and dairy. Uh, we've also heard many of those reports, as you know, of, of milk being dumped in those areas. And that was just discussed uh, before with Gipps Dairy too. Uh, if you have a livestock producer, you've been impacted and you have urgent animal welfare needs, there's a Vic Emergency Hotline, one 226 226 And Agriculture Victoria encourages dairy producers that remained impacted by power outages to take a photo of their NMI number on their power bill and send it to the state agency commander, uh, which is, well, it's a really long email address, which is probably not helpful on the radio, but I'll give it to you anyway and text me if you need it. And I'll, I'll send it back to you, sccvic.scmdr.ag at scc.vic.gov.au. Yep, it's long. I'll read it again, sccvic.scmdr.ag at scc.vic.gov.au. We can call Karen McLennan at Gibbs Dairy. You can search that number online. Otherwise, if you need any of these numbers... Just text the Country House regular line and I'll reply to you, right? Because this is important information. That's 0467 842 722. You know I give that number out a lot. I'll give it out again before the end of the show. Text me if you need that information. I'll send it your way. Uh, speaking of outages, let's continue that discussion. Have a more wide-ranging discussion of uh, the state of the dairy industry in Australia too with a major company. Power surges and dropouts shut major dairy factories down in Victoria when the storms came through on Tuesday. They're back online now, but keeping a perishable product good for the supermarket shelves during a period of no power is really difficult. I caught up with, at the Australian Dairy Conference, Mal Castledone, who's the CEO of Lactalis, one of the big uh, companies processing milk in Australia. In a rare interview with the company, we spoke about the blackouts, milk prices, mandatory code and the future for Australian dairy industry. But we started with the result of the storm and how his company fared. 
Thanks very much, Warwick. A wild uh, 24 hours of storms in Victoria as well. A lot of farmers have been affected, but, but you were affected as well with, with your factories. What, yeah, what can we've you tell got, us? Yeah, uh, we've got two sites that lost power, so one in, uh, in Longwari uh, in Gippsland uh, and one here in Melbourne at uh, Roval. So uh, that's uh, caused some havoc for us and uh, certainly need to manage some, uh, how we manage the milk supply over the course of the next 24 hours or so. So what happens when a dairy factory goes down without power? Uh, well, first of all, you need to make sure you keep everything cold, right? So uh, it means locking the doors and uh, just uh, temporarily uh, sus- uh, suspending supply uh, until we can get the power back on. But uh, equally from the factory side, it's about starting up again, so making sure that you need to do an additional clean. Um, so it uh, creates um, some, a little bit of havoc in regards to uh, a plant that needs to be operating on pretty much on a seven-day basis. Do you know uh, if any of your farmers then had to dump milk? I haven't heard that as such yet, so I'm hopefully, hopefully not. Uh, but it'll be about what we do with the milk. We'll just have to be a little bit flexible about moving it between our different factories. Mm. Well, take me into to Lactalis and where things sit at the moment in the Australian dairy industry. We've been through a period of, of quite high prices. We've seen supermarket prices lift as a result of that. Uh, that also brings imports into play too, right? Yep. What's it like running a major company that deals with a lot of fresh products? Uh, look, yeah, look at, uh, for Lactalis Australia, we are very much uh, a company that's focused on uh, consumer-facing products, uh, all of which, uh, or generally all of which, are, are fresh and short shelf life. Uh, so the changing nature of uh, slightly shrinking milk pool adds some complexity, uh, as does the pricing dynamics. So uh, we've seen some, from a consumer point of view, uh, we've, consumers are obviously focused on cost of living, so that uh, puts some pressure on branded products versus private label, uh, which, are, which is a bit, a bit of a mix that we need to, to be conscious of. Uh, but equally, how we, from a, from a supply side, about how we deal with uh, our milk supply component and particularly things like uh, spring flush. Yeah, so so what are you doing in that regard? Have you had to look at where your milk's coming from and uh, and how you operate your factories? Oh, look, it's probably, uh, there hasn't been a massive change in that space. It's probably what you do with the milk surplus and given, I guess, the difference in commodity pricing uh, for Australia versus the rest of uh, the world, that, that you need to be conscious around uh, how much surplus milk you have because you're not going to get uh, the value for that you once might have. Do you think as we head then towards the middle of the year and, and milk prices coming, is that going to put pressure on milk prices for the next season? Uh, look, I... Uh, the reality is the, the products that need to be exported need to be export competitive. So uh, I think it's going to be what happens with the different levels of milk uh, and there probably needs to be a, a natural equalisation of pricing between, for exported products uh, to, to occur. So um, that said... Uh, I think there's going to be a continued uh, competitiveness in most regions for that milk supply. Yes, yeah, so you've got a situation at the moment where Australian milk's probably $2 or so a kilogram for milk solids above like a, a base export price, right? Um, Correct. Yeah. But uh, the milk pool has still been shrinking, so there's competition from companies like yours to try and get as much as you can. At what point does the competition become less important and the, and the price that you can get for the product at the other end becomes the deciding factor? Yeah, the, I think the deciding factor is what consumers do, yeah. right? So is the reality for us and around about what the, what returns we get from the different product categories. Yeah. Mm. Inter- internally, then, I suppose one of the, one of the uh, the rumours that the, the conference in general has been uh, Lactalis has been uh, letting go some some field service staff lately and and changing your business size that way. Can you tell us any details of that? Oh, look, I'd say that's probably. Um 
uh, it's probably an ongoing part of business about us making sure that we've got the right size team, uh, mm-hmm. the right uh, cost structure uh, to support our business. So, um, yeah, it has been a couple of impacted individuals, uh, but I probably don't want to go into too many details yeah. in regard to that out of respect for, for their changes. Is that mainly in the southwest of the state or is it elsewhere? Uh, look, it was mainly in Victoria yep. as a state. It was, we had some changes around what happened for us nas- uh, nationally uh, and how we, how we managed that, and that had some impact in some, some people locally. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is it fair to say that that's sort of you internally deciding where the book business footprint is and less a reaction to current milk prices or market conditions? Oh, look, it's a reaction to the profitability of the industry at the moment, and that's about, about making sure that our cost basis uh, across the board remains competitive. And, and speaking of remaining competitive, how do you feel the uh, the mandatory code is going in the dairy industry for the, the big period of pricing in the middle of the year and then sort of 12 months of, do you call it stability? Uh, look, I would call it, I, I would call it 12 months of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily call it 12 months of stability because of what happens with the global pricing. It's probably the, it's probably the key aspect for us. So you, do you support the idea of reviewing that code and exactly how it's working at the moment? Uh, look, I, I think we do need to have the review that was scheduled. Um, you know, it's important for us to make sure uh, that the, I guess, the intention behind uh, the dairy code is working for all parties. Mm. And in terms of that then, do you have any suggestions on how that could change or...? Do you want to see that process sort of play out? Uh, look, I think we we'll need to see the process play out. I think mm. there's probably a couple of different elements that, uh, that, that we would need to be wanting to have a look at. Uh, but I think it's important for us to be doing the review process in the first instances uh, to have a look at what those key aspects are. How do you feel the dairy industry in Australia is going? You're, you're the head of one yeah. of the, the big companies, right? We don't hear from you that, yeah. that often. So I, I love the idea of just almost having a health check on yeah. dairy with you. How, how healthy is the Australian dairy industry right now? Uh, look, it's, I mean, it's probably slightly different for the different players in the, uh, in the industry at the moment. I think uh, certainly from a, from a farm point of view, uh, I think the, uh, the indication from this week at the Australian Dairy Conference is that people are in a good space. Um, so hopefully that, that changes into a, or develops into a willingness to continue into invest. Uh, and then we can see the Australian milk pool stabilise, uh, which would be important for us. Um, from a processing point of view, some of those things that we've changed about have, have caused some challenges in uh, the levels of profitability. Um, and then if you move through the value chain, I think from a consumer point of view, uh, our consumers still love dairy, which I think is the most important thing of all. Uh, and it's amazing that dairy consumption is still quite high, given... You know, milk is not a dollar per liter anymore. Cheese isn't as cheap as it was. It's sort of ten dollars for a bag of cut cheese now. So when you look through the product categories from a consumer point of view, um, even at the cheap end, uh, not even taking into account brands, which is where a lot of your work is, though, consumers have gone with dairy, even though the price has gone up. Yeah, generally the volumes are relatively stable across the key categories. There's no doubt that consumers are looking for value within those categories. So you're so, seeing them move within the So they the move category. within the category, so whether it be to different pack sizes or in some instances moving towards private label. Uh, but equally, you've had some people who are now consuming more products in homes. So that's a bit of a benefit for us as well. And uh, I suppose then when you're saying sort of how the industry is going and you, you really want to see stability in the milk pool, how important is stability in the m- milk pool at the processor end, so all the processors that are competing in Australia can sort of stabilise their own businesses? Oh, look, I think it's going to determine about uh, which... 
uh, processes continue to operate is probably the key aspect for us and what categories that we continue to operate in. So if it keeps shrinking, you can see somebody leaving the industry here? Well, I think if it, it's more around the products we can compete in globally, right? So what happens to the ingredients and those sorts of components? Uh, no doubt the, the, the products that we see on our consumer shelves won't change, uh, but we need to be conscious around uh, the value of the Australian products and the uh, probably the increasing... Um, uh, the, the increasing imports that we're seeing because of the value difference we're seeing uh, between Australia dairy prices and globally as well. Mal Kalsandan, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Right, thanks very much, Warwick. Uh, it's the CEO of Lactalis, Mal Castledine, who I saw at the Australian Dairy Conference in Melbourne earlier this week with a real health check on how he sees the industry, given he is a major player. His company is a major player in Australian dairy and also we'll talk about what happened to their factories. You can, can give us a call, 1300 977 222, or send us a text, as some people have, asking for that power email uh, to try and get assistance. You're more than welcome to do so. 0467 842 722 is that number. Jill says, hi, Warwick. We still have no power on our farm at Tainong North. We seem to have been forgotten in our road. Many other areas near us have power. It's so frustrating. Maybe next Wednesday before it's on, they say. Ridiculous. And then she adds, if Taylor Swift was to visit, I bet the power would be restored immediately. Not happy, says Jill. Jill, I can feel that and I can hear your frustration, but you did give me a giggle because maybe we should ask Taylor Swift to go to the areas without power to get the power back on rather quickly. Seems like a a good use of celebrity uh, in my book anyway. Uh, Chris says the sad reality is that if the power was underground, there would be none of these problems, says Chris too. Thanks for all of your texts. Keep them coming. 0467 842 722. Let's get rural news though right now. And Big Rural News Day, really interesting Rural News Day. Emma Field has the details for you. Hi, Emma. G'day, Warwick. One of the nation's biggest dairies will send about 10% of its milking herd to be slaughtered after losing a major supplier contract. Van Dairy, which operates at Woolnerth in Tasmanian's far northwest tip, has revealed it will send 700 cows for slaughter at a nearby abattoir in the wake of losing a 25 million litre milk contract with dairy giant Fonterra. That's from a herd of roughly 7,000 head. Van Dairy CEO Xi'an Fung Lu says in a statement, Fonterra is seeking to reduce their milk production and walk away from their exclusive milk supply agreement. So it was appropriate Van Dairy manages its herd numbers. Fonterra says it's seeking to replace that drop in milk supply and it's fully committed to sourcing more milk from Tasmania. Mr Lu says he will continue to support his farms and his 90 employees. Farmers are grappling with the most damaging incursion of fall army worm on record and have likened the destruction on plants and crops to that caused by a bushfire. Experts say the invasive insect, which originated in the Americas and reached Australia in 2020, is being detected at unprecedented levels in grain crops across Queensland and northern New South Wales. Cameron Rackinen, who farms near Bundaberg, says this year has been a shocker. Our area was hit pretty heavily with bushfires this season. A lot of the farmers are describing this identical to a bushfire. They're losing entire crops and complete losses on inputs. There's no government subsidy or support for these farmers who've basically lost everything. It's definitely our worst year to date. Uh, Nothing even comes close to the level of pressure we've had this year. So far, I reckon our 
little valleys probably suffered a million dollars in lost production and our chemical expenditures up about 300%. The world's first genetically modified banana is a step closer to reality, with Queensland scientists gaining regulatory approval to commercially release the GM variety of Cavendish banana. Scientists say it'll be the first GM fruit approved for growing in Australia. Researchers are in a race to save the banana from Panama disease, TR4, which has devastated banana production in Asia and infected some banana plantations in Queensland and the Northern Territory. Demand for South Australian rock lobster has been mixed this season. With no changes to the lobster trade ban with China, retailers have been trying to get the domestic trade moving. Managing Director of Seafood Retailer and Exporter for Ferguson Australia, Andrew Ferguson, says demand was a bit flat over January. It's probably similar but a little bit better. Not back to normal but was certainly, we felt it this year after, no effect in the marketplace for four years I think. The local market was very good too, I might add, uh, over the Chinese New Year period. Overall, we're sort of we're managing, but it's not easy. It's, uh, it takes a while to sort of find other other markets and, and find your way, but it's sort of slowly coming back. A group representing irrigators and communities in northern Victoria says it's crucial any potential water buybacks in the region are strategic. Yesterday, Federal Water Minister Tanya Plebisek announced the results of the first Commonwealth buyback in the Murray-Darling Basin since 2020. More than 26 gigalitres of buybacks across New South Wales and Queensland have been agreed to be bought for about $205 million. Goulburn Murray Irrigation District Water Leadership Co-Chair Susanna Sheed says it's important to consider how everyone will deal with local buybacks in the future. And for that reason, buybacks cannot be done at random. There is a lot of work to be done and we'll continue to meet and put in a submission in this consultative process that's underway at the moment with a view to seeing how else water can be recovered. Batik alcohol has led to an agave boom for producers in Australia. It's not tequila, but you may have heard Australia has its very own brand new agave spirit that's set to hit the domestic market by March. Neville Travers-Jones is the owner of Bowen Quality Seeds and fell into growing the agave seeds after major company Oz Agave reached out to him. And now he's been supplying it to top shelf international buyers for five years. He says the agave boom is good for Australia as the plant is suited to our conditions. Now that we understand its capability, there's absolutely no waste with the plant. It also um, has the potential to be able to grow in probably what you'd call fairly arid, substandard country rather than in really rich farmland. So that probably makes it more accessible to some people in the marketplace to when they buy land. And Australia certainly hasn't got any shortage of arid semi-wasteland. So I think it's one of the better plants as far as usefulness in Australia, especially around Bowen. And that wraps up Rural News for this week. A new agave spirit. You had me at those words. Thank you very much for that, uh, Emma Field, with Rural News. A lot happening around the country right now. Right now, let's find out what's happening weather-wise. I think it's a bit calmer there, at the very least. Bri McPherson can tell you, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Bri. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good. How's it looking today? Yeah, another fairly nice day. Uh, It's a very slow-moving pattern that we've got um, over the state this weekend. Uh, So we've just got a ridge of high pressure to the south and uh, a bit of a weak trough poking into north from New South Wales. So mostly settled over most of the state.
states, particularly the south and the west, uh, but the chance of some afternoon showers and storms up over the northeastern, far eastern parts of the state over the next few days. Uh, not an awful lot of rain in those storms. They'll be very isolated, so I guess if you got particularly unlucky or lucky, depending on your, your view, then you could get a, a fall of like uh, 30 mils out of it, but as I said, they'll be very isolated up in the northeast and east over the next few days. Um, bit of cloud in the south that's uh, burning off and should be a generally sunny day um, this afternoon, and then we're pretty much looking at the same sort of thing tomorrow and Sunday and then possibly even into Monday before the situation changes. And with the situation changing around Monday, what are you expecting then? Yeah, so the high-pressure system um, or the ridge that's just been lying to the south of the state, the high will start to move into the Tasman, turning our winds a little bit more northerly uh, through the middle of next week. So that'll warm things up uh, throughout the whole of the state uh, rather than just the northwest. And we'll, it'll also let that trough drift a little bit further um, west as well. So those showers and storms might extend uh, into central parts as well as eastern parts on Tuesday and then uh, potentially a trough moving through um, probably more likely Thursday, Friday at this stage, um, but those could enhance uh, shower and storm activity over the west uh, on Wednesday. But still not an awful lot of rainfall expected uh, with any of the activity next week, um, but it's looking like the next significant change in our system is a, a trough or a cold front coming through during uh, the second half of next week. And uh, I ask this somewhat nervously after the week we've had, Bri, but no dry lightning expected with those changes early next week? Look, there could be. Um, it's, it's a while away still. Uh, there's not an awful lot of moisture in the atmosphere. And then as that instability increases, um, into the middle part of next week. There is, there is a risk of some dry lightning um, over, over parts of the state next week. Uh, also, potentially, the fire dangers getting up again uh, around Thursday. Um, not looking as bad as what we've seen this uh, previous week, um, but it's certainly one to watch as we get closer to the day and we, we get a little bit more certainty into the, the details of the event. Um, but it's, it's a very quiet week before that, which is great news. Yes, certainly so. And, and I suppose with it being so quiet and settled across the weekend, are there any warnings either today or into the weekend we should keep an eye out for? No, we're not expecting too much. Um, the very odd chance that we see um, some stronger thunderstorms up in the northeast, maybe there'll be a severe thunderstorm warning, but I, I don't think even that's that likely. Fantastic, Bright. Thank you so much for the update. Not a problem. Brian McPherson there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology with the full forecast for you there over the coming days. Uh, so pretty settled into the weekend, into early next week, and then a few changes coming that we'll keep an eye on. We'll be back on Monday, same time with the weather cross for you on the country hour. Then 0467842722 is the text line. I am giving it a lot today because if you are one of those people who want that email about your power being out to send uh, your NVI number to uh, to the authorities to see what's being done. Uh, I will reply to that text and let you know. An incredible text, actually, on the text line, which has blown my mind uh, just there, saying 41 years today since Ash Wednesday. Oh, my gosh, really? I have I've some close friends from that sort of, well, what is now suburban area of outskirts of Melbourne, but was very country 
uh, growing up in that area and and that event certainly defined their lives as major fire events can as these storms and fires that we've been experienced this week certainly have too that's uh, that's certainly an important date to remember. Thank you very much for sending that through. Megan Ravenswood says regarding power outages, it's a bit over people complaining about no power and how if Taylor Swift would be there, it would all be okay. Be grateful there's people out there working really hard to get the power back on. It is hard when we lose power, but this was there, but there were unprecedented storms, says Meg. Meg, I think completely agree with you on some points um, in the sense that there are some incredible people out there doing a lot of work to get power back on, but it can be very frustrating losing power. And yes, these were unprecedented storms, but we are speaking to people in areas that have lost power from unprecedented storms and from other events quite often over the last year or two. And you can hear the frustration in their voices, especially with having to clean up again and again and again, and their concern about not having telecommunications at a time when they're out cleaning up and worried that no, they might not be able to make a call to authorities if something very bad, happens to them while they're out there doing that work. So more than one thing can be true, can't it? Uh, but it is important to be thankful that there are people working hard to get power back on at the same time. So thank you for that text. Let's move away from our coverage of those issues and talk more widely. And we're staying with the dairy industry right now. But this goes to the wider Victorian farming industry and the lobby group at the heart of it as well, because Australia's peak dairy body is threatening to take legal action against its largest financial member over unpaid fees. Australian dairy farmers say they're owed half a million dollars by the Victorian Farmers Federation, whose fees made up about two-thirds of their membership revenue. The organisation says they've been very patient and continue to be patient, but that patience is running out. ADF President Ben Bennett says mediation between the two organisations has failed and they're running out of that much talked about patience. Well, it's been a process over about 18 months and really we've been very patient uh, and we, like farmers, know how to sort of manage our, our cash flow that's under restriction but it gets to a time that we have to act and uh, we have to take into account the greater desire of farmers. How much money does the Victorian Farmers Federation owe you? Presently it's in excess of half a million dollars. Half a million dollars, does that affect your bottom line and your ability to do lobbying for dairy farmers? Well, I'd imagine it would affect most people's bottom line. It's more of an uncertainty going into the future, really. Like we, We've been in the game for about 80 years, ADF, and we need to have sustainable commitment going forward, work with it, and also the burden on the other members, Okay, because we're all of Australia, and there's five other states where you have to take into their consideration and their goodwill, which I think is getting it a little um, exploited at this point in time. So the other states are getting angry that the Victorian farmers aren't paying their way? Well, they're being very patient too. We all recognise that VFF have got some internal issues uh, and they're endeavouring to work it out. And obviously next week it's coming to a bit of a head. But, um, you know, you've got to pay your way. Is that why you're raising this now? Because the VFF has a key vote coming up? Look, we're endeavouring to engage, and in the last two months since I've had the job, the door's been open and well and truly open. And as you know, Steve Sheridan, former uh, CEO of VFF, and in part, you know, I was largely involved in his appointment because of that relationship that he has with Victoria, and particularly with VFF. You said you wanted to sort this out when you rose to the presidency a couple of months ago. Have, have you been surprised at how difficult you've found it so far? Very, very 
challenging. But, you know, hey, it was number one importance within an hour of having the job. We, we went down, our little team, to see VFF. They were good enough to see us. They, within an hour, they, they were making it very clear to us of the cost of time, and time is money, and it's about $1,000 a day, but it's now two months has elapsed. We're not necessarily a lot closer, and it just gets to be a point of time. We have a duty to our organisation, a fiduciary requirement, to get monies that are rendered owing. What does the President of the Victorian Farmers Federation, or the CEO of the VFF, tell you when you ask them to pay their bills? Oh, look, a lot of that's done between ourselves, OK? But what has happened in the past is owed for services rendered. No different to you getting a dairy farmer getting grain. They can't not pay their grain bill for a year and a half and then say, you know, we're going to give you a haircut for going into the future. You know, let's, let's eat with a knife and fork. Yeah, so you want them to pay what they owe you before you start talking about reducing, say, bills or, or levies or what they owe you in the future? Like I said, we've been pretty patient for 18 months. OK, it's, yeah. Well, there's another dairy group that has started that's not affiliated with the VFF. If the Victorian Farmers Federation stops paying their bills to the National Dairy Organisation, is there an opportunity to break ties with the VFF and maybe side up with Dairy Farmers Victoria? Yes, and that question has been put to me innumerable times. Okay, the reality is, is ADF is an 80-year-old institution. VFF is a long-standing institution. Okay, personalities come, personalities go. I too will come, and I will go. We have a duty, an obligation. Okay, as custodians of our representative institutions that the farmers have got us here for, to to represent them. And a spoke, so that's Ben Bennett, Australian Dairy Farmers President and Dairy Farmer from Victoria speaking there. Spokesperson for the Victorian Farmers Federation say they notified the ADF in October 2022 they would no longer pay member fees, claiming they were, and I quote, unfair and don't represent value for money for Victorian dairy farmers. End quote. The spokesperson would not comment on any prospective or threatened legal proceedings, but claims the ADF are not negotiating in good faith. Uh, we'll obviously have more on that as it develops and in big vote on the Victorian Farmers Federation Constitution Tuesday next week. I think the Country Hour will be there broadcasting on Tuesday. We'll bring you the latest as it happens. Uh, if you'd like to tell us your thoughts, you can always send us an email. Countryhour at abc.net.au is the email. Countryhour at abc.net.au. You're listening to the Country Hour. Let's talk chemicals right now. We'll move away from a dairy and talk, well, for one of the most important inputs for a lot of grain growers and they're battling to secure supplies of critical farm chemicals after the wet summer prompted huge amounts of summer spraying, which is big demand, right? Joe Pedler is General Manager of Sales and Marketing at CropSmart. He says chemical suppliers weren't prepared for the big demand because of the forecast of a dry summer. It's a really interesting time for chemical availability given what's happening around the world and in Australia. Number one is we've got extreme demand within Australia, uh, all of the product takes a time period to, to get to the country, which, you know, we're back to the similar discussions we had at COVID. And we continue to underestimate, um, or the industry continues to underestimate the demand. So let me let me give you a good example uh, of, of why we find ourselves in this situation is 
all of the weather forecast presented an extremely dry summer. So they were all talking El Nino. So pretty much everyone similar to us, I imagine, has the, the forecasting meetings and says, this is what we sold last year. Let's back that off. We're not going to sell this, this amount. We get into the season. We get some really high rainfall in November. So we all regroup and we say we we got that wrong. Um, we're going to sell a lot more product than we have on order. We make the changes and we try and, and think we're going to bring product in by Christmas. Uh, once again, we get more and more rainfall, so the demand increases further. The other thing that gets thrown into the mix is uh, in Australia we have the shipping, the, the port industrial action, which delays containers being unloaded in key ports. Um, so that adds an extra couple of weeks onto getting the product. So once again, we, we kind of reach this point where the demand in Australia is is greater than the speed in which we can get the product to the customer. What is availability like right now? If I walked into one of the shops today and said, oh, I'd, I'd like three shuttles of glyphosate, could I get them? Uh, in most stores, you probably couldn't. But if you'd ordered them a few weeks ago, you could. So have people then been caught out and, and they haven't been able to get the chem when they want it and hence they've had to uh, have the boom, boom spray sitting there until the chem comes in? I think there would be some of that definitely around the country. And with, with glyphosate being the, the most used chemical, is it the one that's, it's got, that's in the most short supply? Anything really, but uh, glyphosate, um, ammonium sulfate is, is, is a, uh, a a granular product which is put in the boom sprays to, to aid water quality and, and increase uptake of, of summer chemicals. That, that's probably been the shortest product in the market where we just the market was out of that for, for four weeks. So uh, but yeah we're seeing a lot of the a lot of the other common common sprays, glyphosate, paraquat, um, ammonium sulfates. So yeah the, the locally made products, I mean we locally make in our factory some oils and adjuvants. Fortunately, when you're when you're dealing with you know part of one of the ingredients is a canola oil, for example, which is made in Australia. No dramas there. We can get those products made, which is fantastic. Obviously, we just rely overseas on a number of of these key actives like glyphosate. We don't make glyphosate in Australia, so those those particular products are affected. And does it just highlight? I suppose, like we saw recently with with urea shortages, because we didn't have stock in the country and had to wait for. Uh, ships to arrive does it just highlight how dependent ag is on on international supply chains yes i, th- I think it does I, I thought well i'd forgotten a lot of these skeletons that were in the closet that we found out over covid and we'd got back to some normality but yeah the reality is we are one big island australia and we rely on a lot of product coming from overseas in the agricultural game and just on pricing, Joe, where where is pricing at at the moment, I guess, uh, with your major products and particularly glyphosate, and has it gone up because of these supply shortages? Definitely you see a, a short-term rise um, when things are tight. Uh, we, the great news is, you know, let me talk about the most commodity product, glyphosate 450. You know, pre-COVID we're selling that at, or I can remember selling that at $3.60 a litre, and six weeks later, $10 a litre, and that went up to $12 a litre. That's back now to a, um, yeah, a mid $4 a litre price. So we've seen a, a really great drop back in most of the pricing in AgChem to pre-COVID levels, which is fantastic. So there really isn't any reason why 
people shouldn't be carrying a little bit more stock given the pricing is traditionally at the lower end again, which is great. That is Joe Pedler, General Manager of Sales and Marketing at CropSmart. He was speaking there to Angus Verley. Hey, some information out there for spud farmers right now uh, on the country. Australia's potato industry is now worth more than a billion dollars. The latest data shows the industry continues to produce around 1.4 million tonnes a year of potatoes, but its production value has increased a whopping 24%, pushing it above the $1 billion mark for the first time. Acting Chair for Potatoes Australia, Nigel Crump, says there's been a lot of investment in the potato sector, which is paying off. Look, it's really exciting. Our, our industry has grown considerably in the last few years, and it's largely driven through the investment the industry has been making over the last few years in automation and in innovation. Um, we've seen many of the processing companies, McCain's, Pepsi, uh, Stack Brands, Land Western, Simplot, they've all made major investments to their, uh, their infrastructure. We're seeing the same thing in the fresh sector, the Pie Group uh, and the Matolo Group have, have both in, uh, made major investments. And that's that's extended right throughout the industry. Is this increase in value flowing back into the pockets of farmers? It's always a challenge. I mean, we're always looking for greater efficiencies to make sure that the farmers are getting greater rate of return, and it's 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 a constant challenge. Uh, and that's one of the the key drivers of Potatoes Australia is to make sure that the entire supply chain is challenged to look where there are greater efficiencies. So is that a, a yes or a no in terms of if it's a good time to be a potato farmer or not? Look, it is a great time to be a potato farmer. Uh, it, it is it is a number one cash crop. So potato farmers are always looking for more, but it's also driven by uh, looking for greater efficiencies in how you do, do business. And that's what a lot of the investment that's happening is because growers need to be more efficient in how they can grow potatoes. So the industry has now cracked a billion dollars in value for the first time going forward. Um, what's your thoughts? Uh, look, I, I think it's just exciting time to be in the industry. The um, one of the one of the big challenges I think we've got is food waste. There's going to be a big challenge throughout the industry. So trying to actually see where where we can fit that in the supply chain and getting better return from the growers R and D levy. I think that's going to be a big challenge moving forward as well. We haven't seen a lot of investment from innovation in the potato industry in over ten years. And so the growers would actually like to see their uh, their levy spend put back into the industry. Potatoes Australia, we're actually hosting the World Potato Congress here in June in Adelaide. Uh, it should be a fantastic event with uh, people from all around the world, over a thousand delegates. So it's a really exciting time to be in the Australian potato industry. Oh, I wish the World Potato Conference was in Victoria, but anyway... I'm glad it's in Australia all the same. That's Acting Chair for Potatoes Australia, Nigel Crump, speaking to Matt Brand. Obviously have more markets information for you on Landline this weekend as well with Landline back. Came back last week, so you can you know set your alarm and watch it on the telly. Or just see it online or in iView if you ever need. Uh, look, it's been a big week, so let's let's end with something a little bit lighter. I wonder what is the most farming thing you've ever had to explain to some city cousins of yours. Maybe that's a whole conversation for another day, but it can be something as simple as some easy farm management practice or even just telling someone what shearing or a boom sprayer actually is. A few tech-savvy farmers are doing just that, but doing it to a big crowd using online platforms like YouTube to make agriculture more accessible for the average Australian. And Faith Tabaluyan has the story on what they're doing. From lambing ewes to broken tractors, Tara's seen it all on her family's sheep and cropping farm in southwest Victoria. But she never thought non-farmers would be interested. 
That was until she started her Tara Farms YouTube channel, where she posts weekly updates about life on the land. Originally, I was doing more comedy and environmental related content because of how I've seen the environment impact the farm. So I've always shown that I've been a farmer on my content and I had a lot of people asking to see more of that. I never thought that people would be interested in seeing it, but it seems like a lot of people are interested in having a look. Tara says most Aussie farmers have been slow to cotton on to social media. There's obviously a lot of people that do it, but Australia especially, there's not a lot of people that create content. I think, I think farmers are quite busy and don't really have time to make content. I know my dad doesn't. <laughs> so me being not in charge of everything makes it very easy for me to be able to go about my day and just film what I do. One of the few who have is John Bruce, also known as JB, who manages a 1,000-hectare farm in southern New South Wales. JB started a YouTube channel 18 months ago and has already got a solid viewer base. Well, the general age of the people are watching the channel, it's, I suppose from some sort of 55 to 65 plus is the, the wider audience. Yeah, and it's pretty, it's pretty well even, isn't it? From sort of, there's nearly 20% of each from sort of 25 years plus, mostly males, a um, few females, come on females, maybe a bit more, um, and mostly obviously Australian viewers, a few in the States and New Zealand. Um, there are a few guys that have commented from other countries, which is good. For JB, it's become an unexpected side hustle. We are actually making a few bucks out of it because we've got X amount of um, subscribers. We could hook up to the revenue side of it, so it's you know we're getting three or four hundred dollars a month out of it. So yeah, like it's I'm not going to retire just yet, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's covered the cost of the cameras and that sort of stuff. So, but for both YouTubing farmers, it's still early days. Through her conversational and pretty hands-on videos, Tara hopes to promote ag among young women like herself. I make it really easy for people to be able to consume and access the content. Over 50% of my audience is female and it does trend to be between 25 and 34 years old. I think it's important to show young women that women can do this role because it's traditionally been a male role. For JB, he's keen to share the stories of farming, but he's still working to crack the YouTube code. It's sort of funny, if you go, go back and look, and most are getting sort of between two and 3,000 views. Um, there's one there that's sort of 3.3. Uh, we had Bailing one, hay. That's yeah, bailing hay, yeah, yeah. So um, I suppose most males like mechanical stuff. So they, um, yeah, if your machinery seems to get probably... Few likes. We had one. We had one last year that was um, a cheering time, and just it was an explanation on about the sheep and mulesing and that sort of stuff. And that I think it's it's sort of ticking over ten thousand views now. So it's hard to pick. I don't know. You you, you put a video together that you think is going to will be interesting, and it doesn't get many views, and then a day to day one, and um, it gets lots of views. So it's yeah. I don't mm. know. It's I haven't worked that part of it out yet. <laughs> yeah. So. That is John Bruce from Boominoonama, just over the border in southern New South Wales. We've got a Victorian one of those too, but he was talking there to Faith Tabalu. And you'll be able to see more on the ABC Rural website, abc.net.au slash rural. Uh, some interesting text here. Jeff said, had to explain to a female fellow ag science colleague the difference between a rand lamb and a ewe lamb. It got a bit graphic. Oh, Jeff, I think you've given us all the giggle we need as we go to end the country hour for a week. I hope you have a great week.